Before I pray, I want to mention that there is a handout for today's sermon, and there's some guys in the back with copies of these. If you did not get one, if you want to just stick your hand up, uh, they'll, they'll get them to you. So thank you, brothers. Hopefully this will help you to follow along with some of the points I'm going to be trying to make. So as we begin this morning, let's open with a word of prayer. The Lord won't mind if you continue with your hand up and receive this paper while I pray. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would cause us to pay much closer attention to your word. Lord, we ask that you would give us grace by the power of your spirit to listen like our lives depend upon it. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us such a, such a sense of our great need that we would go to our Bibles in the morning, every morning, like heaven and hell hang in the balance, like the destiny of our children depends upon our walking with you in godliness. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to feel how deeply we need you and your word. So we pray that you would work among us now. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would amaze us with what a fearful thing it is to fall into your hands apart from Christ. So we commit ourselves to you, Lord, and pray that you would do your work in the name of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Stonewall Jackson, prior to the American Civil War, was actually present when John Brown was hung. And he wrote to his wife describing his response to the execution of John Brown. And this is, this is what he said to his wife. I was very much impressed with the thought that before me stood a man in the full vigor of health who must, who must in a few moments enter eternity. I sent up the petition that he might be saved. Just sort of an aside here. It's remarkable, isn't it? That Stonewall Jackson is praying that John Brown would be saved as the man is being executed. He continues, Awful was the thought that he might in a few moments receive the sentence, Depart, ye wicked, into everlasting fire. I hope that he was prepared to die. But I am doubtful. He refused to have a minister with him. I want to invite you this morning to listen to this sermon like your life depends upon it. As though your response to this sermon could make the difference between heaven and hell for you. Because the truth is that the way that you respond even right now to this sermon is contributing to your character which will determine your destiny. So someone has said, I, I think I heard this from Chip Stam, but it's often repeated, a mature Christian is easily edified. I know that I may do things that are annoying. You may find things like this annoying. That's okay. A mature Christian is easily edified. A, a mature Christian is going to be looking for ways that he or she can be edified by the word. And I would urge you to be a mature Christian in response to this sermon. 
Um, I think the big idea here in Hebrews chapter 10, I would invite you to open this morning to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. And, and I think that this passage here in 10, 26 through 31, following as it does what the author has just said about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, I think the big idea can be boiled down to something like this. Whether we continue to come to church is the difference between heaven and hell. So what, I, what I'm telling you is I think when the author says right out of the gate here in 1026, if we go on sinning deliberately, what he's just mentioned is you know, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of son. And, and those people are forsaking the assembling of themselves. I think in this audience, that the audience that the author is addressing uh, they're forsaking the assembling of themselves because they're tempted to go back to Judaism because of what identifying as a Christian will cost them. And so their continuance in church will, will signify to everybody, I'm with Jesus, persecute, you, persecute me if you want to, but I'm with Jesus. Not going to church means I'm not with Jesus. Don't persecute me with the people of Jesus. I'm with the Jews that I used to identify with, and we're protected from persecution. And I think the author is trying to say here in this passage, 10, 26 through 31, your continuance in coming to church is the difference between heaven and hell. And, and I would encourage you to think of the way that the people that you are around shape the way that you experience the world. And if you are around people like the ones in this room, if these are the people that you identify with, they will shape you to view the world like a Christian views the world. They will shape you to respond to life with faith and perse perseverance, like what we just read in Galatians 5, faith working through love. But if you stop coming to church, don't be surprised if the world shapes you to view the world like a worldling. And if that's the path you take, you should not at all be surprised if you wind up in hell. That's where it goes. So for us to feel this, uh, let, me, let me read to you a quotation from, from James Joyce about the awfulness of hell. Uh, Joyce writes in his book, uh, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, he writes of this, this saint who had this vision, and he, and he describes how this saint stood in the midst of a great hall, dark and silent, save for the ticking of a great clock. The ticking went on unceasingly, and it seemed to this saint that the sound of the ticking was the ceaseless rep repetition of the words, ever, never, ever, never, ever to be in hell, never to be in heaven ever to be shut off from the presence of God, never to enjoy the beatific vision, ever to be eaten with flames, gnawed with vermin, goaded with burning spikes, never to be free from those pains, ever to have the conscience upbraid one, the memory in rage, the mind filled with darkness and despair, never to escape, ever to curse and revile the foul demons who gloat fiendishly, over the misery of their dupes, never to behold the shining raiment of the blessed spirits. 
ever to cry out of the abyss of fire to God for an instant, a single instant of respite from such awful agony, never to receive, even for an instant, God's pardon, ever to suffer, never to enjoy, ever to be damned, never to be saved, ever, never, ever, never. Oh, what dreadful punishment. And, and he continues, and it doesn't get any better. Hell is forever. So I want to urge you to attend to the word as though your life, as though your destiny depends upon it. As we approach this passage, uh, the reason I gave you this handout is because I want to quickly summarize for you the message of the whole book of Hebrews and then this unit that we're in in the book of Hebrews. And, and I think that the author has structured his message in this, this chiastic format. That if, if you look at the left side of these shapes on the page, they sort of look like an X, and the word chiasm comes from the Greek letter X. And, and I'm proposing to you what I think is, is the literary structure of the book of Hebrews. And, and before I give you what I think this means, uh, I want to tell you why I think this is important. I don't want the points that I'm trying to make from the book of Hebrews to come out of my head. I want the points that I'm trying to make from the book of Hebrews to be the author's points. And we understand the points the author is trying to make by the way that he has shaped his, his letter, this epistle that he wrote, this piece of literature that he wrote. He structured it a certain way to give it a certain shape to give it certain emphases, and what, what I'm trying to do as we work through this is discern those emphases from the literary units of the text. And, and I think that he's keyed us by, uh, at the very center of the whole thing in 8.1, saying, the point of what we are saying is this. So I think he's giving you the big idea right there in 8.1. And then uh, these other units, I think, are, are boundaried by repeated words and statements that tell us where things beginning and end. And we've talked about some of those as we've gone through, so I'm not going to rehearse all that here. What I want to do here is I want to, on the top of your sheet, it says the chiastic structure of Hebrews. And I want to start at the center of that, at 8, 1 through 6. And I'm just going to spiral outward in this, this statement that I'm about to read to you that summarizes the message here, okay? So here's... here's Here's the center, Christ's better ministry, that's 8, 1 through 6, as part of the better covenant, and that picks up all of really 5, 1 through 2, 10, 18, you know, uh, 7, 12, where there's a change in the priesthood, there's a change in the law as well, and then all that stuff through chapters 8 and 9 about the new covenant, Christ's better ministry as part of the better covenant, inaugurated by his better sacrifice, so we're still in 5, 1 through 10, 18, and mediated by his better priesthood will actually accomplish what the old covenant could not do. Namely, enable direct access to God's presence in the heavenly holy of holies. And so because of that, no matter what you might suffer or how you might be persecuted for being a Christian, and we've talked about how these people... If they identify as Christians, they face persecution from Rome for not participating in the Roman imperial cult. No matter how you might suffer or how you might be persecuted because of Christ, you should never abandon him by returning to Judaism or for us anything else. 
And then, and so, so I think that never abandon him and enter in is like chapters 3 and 4 and 10, through 12, 10 19 through 12, 25. And then the, the outer sections, 1, 1 through 2, 18 and 12, 25 through 13, 25, I think we can say, hear the scriptures, hold fast the truth, draw near to God. So I think that's the big idea of Hebrews. Let me, let me summarize that even more briefly. Chapters 5 through 10 in the very middle. He's the great high priest of the new covenant who's offered the better sacrifice. So you should believe and enter chapters 3 and 4, chapters 10 through 12. And then outside that, listen, listen, pay much closer attention. Do not neglect him who is speaking. That, that's the big idea of the author. At the beginning and end, he's trying to get you to pay attention. And then second and second to last, he's trying to get you to believe the scriptures and draw near to God. And then the, how do you draw near to God? Chapters 5 through 10, Christ has this Melchizedekian high priesthood that enables you to enter into the direct presence of God. So draw near, hold fast, and then consider how to stir others up to do the same. So that's the whole message of Hebrews. And, and that brings us to the, the, the section of the book that we find ourselves in today. We'll be looking this morning at chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. And um, you can see there are, there, there's a, a unit on 3, 1 through 4, 16 on your handout. And then that's followed by a unit on 10, 19 through 12, uh, 24. Those two are there because they stand across from one another in the whole book's chiastic structure. If you, if you look at the top um, uh, depiction, you can see that there. And we find ourselves in the second unit of 1019 through 1224. Now, I want to, again, start at the center of this unit and spot, make, a, make a spiral out to sort of summarize what I think the big idea of, of 1019 through 1224 is. So starting with Abraham and Moses at the center, here's what I think the author is saying. You should be like Abraham and Moses and other believers who trusted, endured persecution and affliction, resisted temptation, accepted the Lord's fatherly discipline, drew near, held fast, and on the great day will enter into the new heavens and new earth. That's, I think that's the big idea of, of 1019 through 1224. Now, just one more comment on how I think this literary structure helps us to understand what's going on in Hebrews before we get into the text. So you can see how 10, 26 through 31 stands across from 12, 8 through 17. And, and on your handout there, next to 10, 26 through 31, it says, if we go on sinning. And then in 12, 8 through 17, it says, if we are without discipline. I think these stand across from one another, and I think they both assume the recognition, but we won't, right? If we go on sinning, but we're not going to do that. We won't go on sinning. And then in the corresponding unit, if we are without discipline, but we're not. We're not without discipline. The Lord brings discipline into our lives. And so seeing how those two units correspond to one another, I think keeps us from drawing wrong conclusions about the unit we're looking at here this morning. So look with me, if you will, at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. And I would remind you again that we've just seen in 10.25, how the author says in 10.24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, 
as, the, as is the habit of some. And we talked when we were in this passage about how I think the author is assuming that the Lord's Day gathering, first day of the week, Christians get together to worship the risen Lord Christ, to hear his word. That's what I think he's talking about. That's what I think the, author, the, the audience would understand him talking about. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, that's the day of judgment, drawing near. So when he says now in 1026, for if we go on sinning deliberately, I don't think he's talking about just any sin. I don't, I don't think he's referring to uh, uh, various sins that you may be afflicted with in your life that seem to crop up repeatedly uh, through the course of your days. I think he's talking about stopping coming to church, not drawing near, not holding fast to the confession. You look back up at, at, at uh, chapter 10, verse um, 22, let us draw near. 10.23, let us hold fast. And then 10.24, let us consider. Those, that's what he's just talked about. And I think he's addressing now, if you deliberately stop being a Christian, that, that I think is the, 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 the context of this statement. But he's assuming that his audience is not going to stop being a Christian in the same way that in the corresponding unit, he'll assume his, his audience will continue to experience God's fatherly discipline. But if you stop being a Christian, verse 26, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. This is a lot like that warning passage in chapter 6. And you may, you may remember that when we looked at that passage, um, I made the case that everything described there partakes of this initial conversion. And it's as though he's describing all these, these features and these, these events that happen to you right when you're converted... And what he's saying is, you need to leave the elementary things, and you need to go on to maturity, press on to maturity. Uh, you don't need to be back here at the elementary things deciding, am I going to continue as a Christian, or am I going to abandon Christ? And then he explains, if you abandon him, you'll never come back. And so also here, I think this receiving the knowledge of the truth is that initial converting understanding of the gospel. And he's saying, if after you've received the knowledge of the truth, you then decide not to be a Christian, well, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. He's talking to people who are tempted to go back to Judaism. And what he's been arguing throughout this letter is, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus has put an end to all the sacrifices of the old covenant. So if you abandon Jesus, there's no more sacrifice for sin. You can't go up to the temple and offer a sacrifice that will achieve atonement for you because that has come to an end now that Christ has come. This is why we read Galatians 5 earlier in the service. I think Paul is making the same case in Galatians 5. And essentially, the reason he says, if you take on circumcision, you're going to have to keep the whole law. The reason he says that is because now that Christ has come, and put an end to the old covenant sacrificial system, the only way to be saved by the law of Moses is to obey it perfectly. There are no sacrifices available anymore through the old covenant. And I think that's what the, the author of Hebrews is saying here also when he says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, and then verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, on your, 
on your handout, I've highlighted the way that you, you have reference to a fearful expectation of judgment here in verse 27 and how that corresponds to verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So at beginning and end, we have reference to this, this fearful expectation of judgment. This author is warning his audience, if you go away from Christ, if you abandon the Lord Jesus, you have no hope but judgment. You have no hope but, ju but judgment. And we would say to anyone here this morning who is not identifying as a Christian, and, you know, I identifying, what, what does that mean? Well, you're somebody who's saying, what the Bible says about me is what's true about me. I'm a sinner. And, and I transgress God's commands, and I break his laws, and, and, and I thwart his holiness, and I reject his authority over my life, and I insist upon my own way. And I do what I want to do even though I know it's wrong. And, and that's what the Bible tells me about myself, and I know that to be true. And I know that because of that, I only deserve God's wrath. If I got what I deserved, I would have been in hell a long time ago. And that's the only thing I have, I have the right to insist upon. I've been listening to um, C.S. Lewis's great divorce in recent days. And you, you may be aware, with this, um, aware of this um, piece of literature. Lewis, it, it's as though uh, the narrator of the book has gotten on a bus that has taken him up into sort of the, the beginnings of the realm of heaven. And they've come out of the beginnings of the realm of hell. So people, in, it's like people in hell can have a holiday and they can go up to heaven and see what it's like up there. And the colors are too bright and the air is too clean. They, they, they don't like it a bit. They don't like it at all. And one of those characters who gets to enter into heaven, he insists upon his rights. And he's eventually told, you want what you deserve? You'll have it. And he's sent back to hell. That's the only thing that we have earned. Being a Christian means that you recognize that, and it means you also recognize that God in his mercy and love sent the Lord Jesus to pay the debt that we have and, and to take our punishment for us so that God's justice is satisfied and God's mercy is extended to us so that if we'll repent of our rebellion and put our faith and hope in the Lord Jesus, we can actually be saved. That's what it means to be a Christian. And anybody here that's, that's not a Christian, we would say to you, we don't want you to have only, verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The Bible is consistent. That's what the wicked should anticipate. That's the only thing the wicked should expect. That's what's coming to the unrepentant. The only way out of that fate is to turn from your sins and be saved to put your hope and faith in the Lord Jesus. And then the author in verse 28, I think he's going to uh, clarify what he's talking about by comparing um, what, he, what, he, what he's discussing here with the way it was under the old covenant. So in verse 28, he says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses. Now here's, here's I think, proof that we're not talking about continuing to commit sins that we're trying to overcome when he says in verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately. Uh, when, he, when he talks here in verse 29, 28 about setting aside the law of Moses, he's envisioning someone who is sent, who's in Old Covenant Israel and essentially says to Moses, 
Moses, I don't need your law. I don't need that covenant between Yahweh and Israel. I don't need that temple. I don't need that sacrificial system. I don't need any of that. I'm going to go my own way. That's what it means to set aside the law of Moses, somebody who just rejects the whole package. And, and, and since that's what he's talking about with reference to the, this old covenant sort of illustration here, I think that's also what he's envisioning when he speaks of going on sinning deliberately there in verse 26. So verse 28 Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. I think he's addressing a circumstance where um, someone who has repudiated the covenant, they have sinned with a high hand, and, and they have walked away, and, and then they've committed some grave transgression, whether it be murder or, or some other uh, transgression that warrants the death penalty under the old covenant, and, and on the evidence of two or, two or three witnesses, they are going to be put to death. Now, the move that he's going to make is, a, is, a, is, is, is like, it's like a story that I heard this week. I was, I was sitting at lunch with a man named George Martin, who teaches with me at Southern Seminary. And uh, somebody asked Dr. Martin, they, they said something to the effect of, what's, the, what's your most harrowing experience that you've ever had on the mission field? He's been all over the world. Um, many, many times, and, and, they, and he was like, what do you mean? And they said, well, did, did a lion or, you know, a, a, a tiger ever come at you someplace in the, in, the, in the bush, in the jungle or something? And he was like, no. He said, the scariest thing, moment in my life was actually on a rickety old airplane as we, were, as we were sort of puddle jumping, going from one place to another in Indonesia. And he said, it was this old war plane, and, and, and we got into the plane and we took off. He said, my daughter was on the plane with me. And he said, all of a sudden... It was like a hurricane was happening in, inside the plane. He said the, the belly of the plane, he said it was some old war plane that was like a bomber, and the belly of the plane just fell open. And all this air is rushing into the, into the plane. And, and, and he said other passengers are taking their seatbelts off and running around trying to get the, pass the, the pilot's attention. He said, I didn't take my seatbelt off. Now... What, the move that the author of Hebrews is making is akin to me saying, if you think that's bad, imagine if something like that happened in a spaceship. Okay, that's the move that the author is making. If it would be bad for that, to be, for that to happen within our atmosphere, for the belly of the plane to fall open and all this air, imagine how much worse it would be for that to happen in outer space, right? You'd die instantly. Dr. Martin said that the pilot, he knew what was going on. He didn't need those people out of their seats, and he just cranked some lever, and they got the thing shut back up, and praise the Lord, they landed. Uh, the author continues here. Look at what he says in verse 29. How much worse punishment. You see how the logic is working? He says, if you set aside the law of Moses, you're going to die on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, implicitly, if you set aside the new covenant? You go away from Christ. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved? And he's going de to describe going away from the new covenant, setting aside Christ, abandoning being a Christian in three ways. First, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? We talked about this kind of idea when we were back in Hebrews 6. And you'll remember that there, the, the author speaks of how those who abandon Christianity, they crucify for themselves 
the Son of God. Meaning, they agree with those who crucified him. They say, essentially, he deserved to get executed. They needed to execute him. And if you're not a Christian, you need to be honest with yourself. If you're not a Christian, you can't, like, shave off the parts of Jesus that you don't like and then say something like, well, I think that Jesus was a good guy. I think he was a good moral teacher and all that business. No, 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 no. You must have him as he, as he is. You must let him be who he is. And the truth is, you don't like him at all. You don't like the demands he makes on you. You don't like the claims that he makes. You don't like him professing to be God and Lord and having the right to demand your loyalty, your submission, your obedience, and your faith. That's who he is. That's who he is. And you will have him whole or not at all. And if you're not a Christian, you need to recognize you're trampling underfoot the Son of God. If you're not a Christian, this, this man Jesus, who loved as no one has ever loved, who deserves respect as no one has ever deserved respect, who, who warrants loyalty and commitment and faith, he deserves all this. And you're trampling him underfoot. That's what the author is saying. If you abandon Christianity, you are trampling him underfoot. The most worthy, the most, the most exceptional, the, the best person who has ever lived, who is the incarnate God, you are trampling him underfoot. If you are resisting the wooing of the Holy Spirit, summoning you right now to believe in him. How much worse punishment, verse 29, do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? Um, the, I think the, the New American Standards translation is actually uh, better here. It, it renders this um, regarded as unclean, the blood of the covenant. Uh, but the idea is, as the author has been describing, it's the blood of the Lord Jesus himself that cleanses us and that brings us into the holy realm, that sanctifies us in that sense. And if you're somebody who's, who's drawn to Christ and then you decide, nope, I'm done with him, you're trampling him underfoot, and then you're also declaring that blood which actually does enable people to enter into the heavenly holy of holies, to experience the presence of God, that's what it accomplishes. That blood is actually just common blood. That blood is just the, the blood of a man that got crucified on a cross, and that's all, it's, that's all it amounts to. It's nothing more than, than ordinary human blood that was shed by an ordinary human being whom I think deserved to get murdered. That, that, that's what you're saying if you reject Christianity. He has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And, and I think the author, again, is speaking um, as though believing people are being tempted to leave the faith, uh, but this is also true of those who um, are being drawn to the faith. The, the only way for you to be sanctified is through the blood of Christ. So that's the second thing. The second way this is described, abandoning Christianity, the third way is, and has outraged there in verse 29, the spirit of grace. If, if you abandon Christianity, 
you outrage the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't, misun don't misunderstand that and don't underestimate the force of this. This is saying that God the Holy Spirit is outraged by those who do not honor Christ as Lord. God the Holy Spirit is outraged by those who do not give to the Lord Jesus the trust and loyalty that he deserves. That is outrageous behavior. You know, if, if let's say that I called up uh, someone in our congregation who is eminently trustworthy. Let's say I called J.O. Or, or Denny or Chris Birch or Matt D'Amico or one of these brothers up here, and, and I, I had them testify to you about something that they had seen. And then let's say that, that someone in the congregation said, I just don't believe that man. I think we would rightly feel outraged. He deserves our trust. Why, why would you not believe him? Now take that and multiply that, that sense of indignation by the infinite worth and trustworthiness of the Lord Christ. And then, and then imagine what it would be to be Almighty God, the Holy Spirit. That's the outrage that is felt that, that the author is describing here. If you don't believe in Christ, if you don't recognize how trustworthy he is, you are outraging the Spirit of grace. And this is why this sermon is, is entitled, The Unforgivable Sin. As you know, the unforgivable sin in the Gospels is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I would argue that blasphemy in the Holy Spirit in the Gospels can be boiled down to a refusal to believe in Christ. It's unbelief. The, unforgi the only unforgivable sin is unbelief. The unforgivable sin is unbelief, and that's what this author is addressing. If you believe, you will repent, and God will forgive you. If you don't believe, you will never repent, and you will go unforgiven. Now, um, you can see on, on your handout the way that the author, I think, has um, structured the message here so that at the very center, he first refers to the Son of God, and that stands across from the reference to the Spirit, and in the middle, he refers to the blood of the covenant which sanctifies God's people. And that means that verse 28 is going to stand across from verse 30. And in verse 28, he had said, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And in verse 30, he's going to give us two, or three, or two witnesses here um, to uh, the fact that the Lord is going to judge. So in verse 30, he says, now he's, he's, ex he's uh, explaining and grounding his claim that that. Far worse punishment is going to be merited by those who go away from Christianity than even those even was merited by those who go away from the law of Moses. So verse 30, he says, For we know him who said, and now he's going to quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32, the passage that Matt read earlier in the service. And this is actually a, a very interesting um, quotation because when it says here, in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30, we know who, him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That is actually a very close translation of the Hebrew text. And some of you will be aware that people often say things like this. The author of Hebrews always quotes the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Not here. Not here. You, you go look at every 
every available Greek translation of the Old Testament that we've got, none of them read like this unless they've been, you know, edited to get closer to what the Hebrew text actually says. This is a quotation of the Hebrew text. So here I think the author of Hebrews is clearly quoting the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. I think that's interesting. I know I'm an egghead. Anyway, um, we know him who said, now look at what the Lord says. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, so that's the first reference, or first, first witness. And again, second witness from the Lord himself, the Lord will judge his people. Now, those statements back in Deuteronomy 32, when it, when it reads, the Lord will judge his people, they actually translate it in the, in the ESV, the Lord will vindicate his people. And the idea is, he's going to render judgment on behalf of his people and thereby vindicate them against their adversaries. That's the idea. So the Lord will judge his people in the sense that he's going to render judgment for us against the oppressors, the persecutors, the rejecters of Christ. So what the author is saying to his audience is, you don't want to join the crowd that the Lord is going to take vengeance on. You don't want to leave Christ and leave Christianity and go join with these people that when the Lord vindicates his people, he's going to be crushing and defeating you. He's, he's urging them to stay with Christ. And then he concludes in verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As, as I've listened to um, The Great Divorce, one of the things that, that stood out to me from this portrayal by C.S. Lewis of the way that people who have an opportunity to enter into heaven decide to decline that opportunity. And as I've thought about, about where Lewis got these ideas, you know, the way those people talk, sort of on the outskirts, on the periphery of heaven, having the opportunity to enter in, it's the same way that people talk when when we share the gospel with them. They, re they reject the opportunity to enter into heaven for the same reasons that people reject the gospel right now. Their own pride. Their own sense of their self-importance. Their, their own desire to have it their way. So there's a, there's a liberal theologian who uh, insists on this sort of clever wordplay and insists on not coming down firm on any fixed beliefs. There, there's a mother who wants her son more than she wants God. And because God will not give her her son, because God wants to give her himself, she rejects God. She, in fact, and I think this is true about the way that people respond to life, this mother evidences a preference to be in hell with her son over being in heaven with God and with her son. There, there's a painter who comes into heaven and, and he, he, all he wants to do is paint. And he's told, no, 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 no. When you were painting, you were capturing the glory of this. You're now enjoying this. You now have the real thing. We don't need you to paint. Enjoy the real thing. And he, no, 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 no. He wants to paint and he will have it his way. And he goes to hell. People who go to hell refuse to fear God and give themselves up to him. They insist on their own way. 
but mature, mature Christians are easily edified. Mature Christians recognize the glory, the mercy, the love of God, and it, it lifts our eyes off of ourselves and enables us to worship Him. I started to, to read you another quote from a portrait of the artist as a young man by James Joyce. Instead, I'm just going to summarize it for you briefly. He's, he's trying to illustrate how long eternity is. And I'm, here I'm just reflecting on Hebrews 10.31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. One of the reasons it's fearful is because it will never end. And Joyce says, he says, imagine how many grains of sand there are in, in just a scoop, a handful of sand from the beach. Now take, take a million miles of sand and imagine that once every million years a small bird comes and he takes one grain of sand and he flies off with it. How long would it take for a square foot of sand to be carried off? How many millions upon millions of years and eternity will have only begun? not even begun to have begun. There will be no end to the misery. Fear God. Turn to Christ. Enjoy His glory. Receive His love. Don't go on sinning deliberately, but rather draw near, hold fast, and consider how to stir others up. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the way that the author of Hebrews has considered how to stir us up to love and good deeds. We praise you, Lord, for this cathedral of resonance that he built in this letter, this architectural marvel, this message that will save our lives. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to hear him proclaiming the glory of Christ, the Melchizedekian high priest who has inaugurated a better covenant by means of his better sacrifice through his better priesthood, which he has by the power of his indestructible life. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe and enter. The wilderness generation failed. Joshua's generation didn't get in. But the believers will enter. And Lord, we pray that you would cause our desire to be with you to be in your presence, to, to be what we were made to be, those who know you, those who dwell in your presence, those who worship and serve you. Lord, we pray that you would stir us up to desire this. And as a result, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, not, not to neglect you as you speak through this letter. And we ask that you would do all these things by the power of your spirit for the glory of Christ, for the good of our souls. Lord, we ask that you would give us an evangelistic burden and cause us to be speaking the gospel at every opportunity. In Christ's name, amen.